Let's stand together. We're going to look in Romans chapter 8 tonight. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're talking about making the Christian life work. Last week we saw uh, us in the Spirit. And tonight we're going to begin talking about the Spirit in us and what He's doing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. In the Spirit. We saw that last week. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. What a magnificent passage for us to be considering in this time of year. What happens to us because Christ is in you. I've told you before, but I mention it again tonight, that this is the New Testament doctrine of union with Christ. We refer to it theologically. It is how we are said to be in Christ from the moment that we are saved, we are in Christ. That is our position. Now, you may be in Cabot, and you're in Faith Baptist Church, but I want to tell you, theologically, spiritually, our position is, right now, that you are in Christ Jesus. So much so that Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places where in Christ Jesus made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. So we are in Christ, but all Christ is in us. You say, well, I thought Jesus is on the right hand of the Father, the throne, occupying the throne. He is. He is. And yet before Jesus left, he gave his followers the promise and the promise was that he would not be left, he would not be left like an orphaned or abandoned child. But he said, I will come to you. I will come to you. I'm going away, he said, but I will come to you. We might be puzzled by that. How can Jesus both go away and come to us? And, of course, the answer to that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, there, because of our understanding of the Trinity, it's not like we've got three different. No, no, they're all the same. And to have Jesus, if Jesus lives in you, the Holy Spirit lives in you. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, Jesus lives in you. Christ is in us. Yes, the hope of glory. The Spirit of God lives in us. Yes, in fact, we see that play out in this very passage. Verse 10, if Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. I like to say that the Holy Spirit is the operational member of the Godhead. Some of the people take issue with me saying that. I'm sorry. If you can find a better way to say that, then uh, you can say that the Holy Spirit is the operational member of the Godhead that is in the world operating right now. 
he is the one who fulfills that uh, omnipresence that we talk about of God. That God is omnipresent. How he can be present everywhere at the same time. How can that thing happen? Well, that's the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus can keep his promise to every single one of his churches. Where two or three of you gather together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. That's why we can gather together and worship him. He's here. That's why the whole issue of authority has always seemed to be somewhat of a moot point. If the king is in residence, please tell me who's in charge. The king is. So if the Holy Spirit is in his churches and he is, then who's in charge? He is. He is. Uh, Jesus didn't pass along his authority to anybody or anything. He kept all of it himself. And he is here to administer it. And he does. He does it in his churches. He does it in our lives. He is here. The Christ is in you. How? By the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. Lo, I'm with you always. Who is it that's keeping that promise? The Holy Spirit is. I could go on and on for you tonight, but I think you're getting the point that uh, Christ, it's not like we're talking about two different ones. This is Christ. The, yes, I understand Jesus has a real physical body. Yes, I understand that, that God, we talk about the invisible God, God the Father. Uh, we also understand the truth of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. Do we understand all about how that works? No. But we believe it. Why? Because the Bible tells us so. God exists as one God. One personality. Three distinct personages. And all of them all have their own office and operate in the world in their own way. Yes. Now, when we understand then that the Spirit is in us, that we are in Christ, and the Spirit then is in us, and He is operating in the world, He is operating in us, He's operating in His churches, we might well ask ourselves the question, why do we give the Holy Spirit such a silent treatment? Have you ever talked to Him? He's here. He has a name. Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Yes, we do. But we can call out to him and talk to him. After all, he's the one who's going to be making intercession for us. We'll talk about that before we get through in Romans chapter 8. The one who makes intercession for us in our prayers with groanings that cannot be uttered. Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. The operation of the Holy Spirit then in us is the means by which we're able to live out what Christ has created us to be. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to do that. And tonight we're going to begin looking at some of these things in Romans chapter 8. One of them we've already looked at, our identification in Christ. Uh, that as many as 
If, indeed, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so the, the Spirit of God in us serves as identification for us. But it also serves as liberation, adoption, acceptation, glorification, intervention, and confirmation, all mentioned here in Romans chapter 8. We begin tonight talking about our liberation. It's a man named Henry Bibb who was a slave on a Kentucky plantation that bordered the Ohio River back in those terrible days of slavery in this country. He would write his memoirs later after he became a, a freeman. After many es- failed escape trips, he fi- att- attempts, he finally escaped, ended up in Detroit, was educated, wrote his feelings. And he said this, sometimes standing on the Ohio River bluff, looking over a free st- state and as far north as my eyes could see, I've eagerly gazed upon the blue sky of the free north, which at times constrained me to cry out from the depth of my soul. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, that I might soar away to where there's no slavery, no clankering of chains, no captives, no lacerating backs, no parting of husbands and wives, and where a man ceases to be the property of his fellow man. These thoughts have revolved in my mind a thousand times. I stood upon the lofty banks of the river Ohio, gazing upon the splendid steamboats, and I thought of the fishes of the water, the fowls of the air, the wild beasts of the forest, all appeared to be free, to go just where they pleased. And I was an unhappy slave, Henry Bibb. So I read a little bit about his story and read this quote from him this week. I, I thought, once again, as I have many times, I'm so thankful that that scourge of slavery was purged from our nation so long ago. That we saw the error of it, and though it had to be settled in blood, and oh, how much blood was shed, that issue was taken away. See, Henry Bibb was living out one kind of slavery, but there's a whole different kind of slavery. Not the kind of slavery brought about when one man owns another, but it's the kind of slave that lives under the bondage of sin. It's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 8 and verse 36 when he said, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Paul's already been talking about that bondage to sin in this passage and the bondage of corruption. It's a bondage that works through our physical bodies and brings with it pre-programmed behavior because we're used to reacting to sin and temptation in a certain way and the old man continues to react in that same old way and it's kind of like phantom pain. It's just a a natural kind of reaction. It's like a, a dog that's been hit too many times and he starts ducking every time somebody raises a hand to it, even though it might just be going to put him. He's got that conditioned behavior. The old man acts like that. It's under bondage to sin. As a result, in chapter 7, Paul described that warfare that was going on between the flesh and the spirit, ending up saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God that was the answer. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord, there is deliverance, yes. So that the only solution to the power of sin that operates in the flesh of the believer in Christ is found in this passage. But if the spirit 
of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. Give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Romans 8 and 11. Sometimes as Christians, though, we can kind of sympathize with Henry Bibb. We hear about a land where there's a freedom from sin. We hear about how that if the Son has made us free, we shall be free indeed. We, we know it exists, but do we live it out? Is there an Ohio River in our own mind, in our own heart, that somehow is keeping us from enjoying the reality of our freedom in Jesus Christ? Well, these seven promises in Romans chapter 8 are designed to show us how we can live this truth out. It begins with identification, with knowing who we are. Because the Spirit of God is in us, then we know that we are the children of God. That identifies us. But then there's also liberation. Verse 15 says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Paul speaks in, in this passage, of another kind of bondage. The bondage not just to sin, but to, to fear. The kind of bondage that occurs when a person is unsure or uncertain of his eternal destiny. Now you might wonder sometimes why that I and maybe many other Baptist preachers make such a big deal about the eternal security of the believer. Number one, we do that because it is clearly taught in the Word of God and yet denied by many, many people in the religious world. Number two, we do that because as long as a person is uncertain about their eternal destiny, they are in bondage to fear, the very fear that Paul said in Romans eight fifteen that we don't have. Because the Spirit of God lives in us. I've quoted him many times on this. I loved uh, Adrian Rogers. He said, God doesn't want our faith to be a question mark, but an exclamation point. And I pray tonight yours is. That we're not living in fear about our eternal destiny. Because this liberation that comes to us through the presence of the Spirit of God in our life. Then makes us free from the fear of condemnation. We have placed our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Love what John said in 1 John chapter 4. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. How's that for a concept for you tonight? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You see, because we have believed on Jesus Christ, John tells us that we are dwelling in his love. We love him, and he loves us, and we know who loved us first, and we know who loved us the most. And that love then cast out fear. Love and fear are mutually exclusive. And we are confident then that we love God and we are loved by Him. And therefore there's no fear. 
And if fear is present, then that love is not complete. We also see that love is stronger than fear. Why? That we can grow in our love and grow in our love for God. Uh, The Apostle Paul was getting close to the end of his life when he prayed that he might know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That I might know the love of Christ, the depth, breadth. Remember that passage? To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Oh, Paul, didn't you already know how much Jesus loved you? Oh, yes, he did. But he wanted to know more about it. Don't you already know, Paul, that you love Jesus? Oh, yes, he did. But he wanted to love him more. And I can identify with that. You see, the difference between a hope-so faith and a no-so faith is how much we know about how much Jesus loves us, what he has done and what he is doing in our life. When we learn that, we have that liberating experience because we know that the same Jesus that saved us is the one who is keeping us saved. The same Jesus that began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That's why we have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, I don't think that passage means for us that we have nothing to fear from the judgment of God. I've I've heard people talk about it that way. Um, And I, I I don't want to say that. If I understand the judgment seat of Christ, it is all about our works, our service. And so that we will stand before him and uh, Jesus assured us that even a cup of cold water given in his name, he said, you will barely, I say unto you, you will in no wise lose your reward. It's about our service. Our sins also might come up, but only in the sense of what it kept us from doing, how it hindered us. How it affected our testimony. How much more we could have done in opposition to what we did actually do. In that sense, yes, I I think we can be concerned about the judgment of Christ. One of the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. We will give an account for everything, for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Yes, yes. But you know, as I anticipate that day, then when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one thing that I don't fear. Depart from me, you that work iniquity, for I never knew you. I don't fear that at all. And so we have confidence then in the day of judgment. As our good friend Brother Bill has so often said to us, the the worst thing that could ever happen to us is never going to happen. The worst thing that could ever happen to anybody is to die and go to hell for all eternity. That's not going to happen. We don't fear that. We don't have, we're not in bondage to that. That's our liberation through the Spirit. There's also the promise of adoption through the Spirit. For you not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. That's verse 15. Whereby we cry, Ava. Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
Now, our part in the family of God is often given to us in Scripture as a matter of birth. John chapter 3, 6 and verse 6, Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Simon Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So if we are born into God's family, why do we have to be adopted? Maybe you've never asked that question tonight, so I'm going to ask it for you. If we're born again into God's family, if we're born into God's family, why do we have to be adopted? Growing up, I, I, I learned to love the old television show, The Big Valley. Sorry, this is an illustration for all you old folks like me. How many of you remember The Big Valley? There's a bunch of you. I think you can probably see it on Grit anymore. There's a Grit station out there. and if, Maybe pull it up on YouTube. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. The Big Valley. It's a story of the Barclay family out in California. Wealthy, arist- uh, aristocratic family. Uh, very well off. Uh, they were surprised one day when a young man showed up named Heath. Uh, uh, they were surprised, of course, because... He was the son of the Barclay dad, but he was illegitimate. It's quite the scandal in the Barclays. A whole lot of that story, though, was about them trying to deal with Heath and trying to incorporate him into the family. And You know, we don't, we don't hear much about the concept of illegitimacy anymore. Because in our world, uh, if you are an heir, if you are a son of a father, then that father has legal responsibilities for you. Uh, That parentage can be established by a simple DNA test now. But you understand generations of people lived without such a thing. So that you might be a relationship, you might have... Uh, A father, you might be his son and yet have no legal standing with the family. And your relationship with that family and even with your father might be very much in question. Of course, still, we can't force a relationship, can we? And a lot of people in this country are living out the tragic reality that they've got a daddy that, no, he may pay the bills and pay his child support because they make him. He never has anything to do with his own child. Frankly, I can't imagine such a thing. If one of my kids was in that situation, and I'll say it right here from the pulpit tonight, and I believe it. If one of my kids was doing that, they might do it, but I'm liable to take a belt to them. I don't care how big they are. If it would do any good. It wouldn't do any good. I know one thing. (laughs) Uh. I wouldn't be ignoring that child. Uh, uh, That's my flesh and blood, my grandbaby. I can't imagine people who would ignore a child or grandchild, their own flesh and blood. If they made a mistake, if they did something wrong, own them to it, face it. Don't, Don't make that child grow up without a standing in the family. 
Now, I bring all that up tonight and I say all of that because we need to understand that adoption is all about the standing in the family. We're born again into relationship with God, but God didn't leave it as that. He adopted us and that gives us full legal standing in the family. This was a mystery in the Old Testament. We talked about that old covenant this morning and and how that Jeremiah promised a, a new covenant with the house of Israel. But even at that moment, God didn't reveal that that new covenant was going to include us, the Gentiles. And that we had brought, be brought into that covenant on equal relationships with the Jews. You say, why didn't God tell Jeremiah? It was a secret. The New Testament calls that a mystery. God hadn't revealed it yet. And he didn't reveal it until after Jesus Christ had been on the earth and and had suffered and bled and died, rose again and returned to heaven. Then and only then would he reveal that God is no respecter of persons. That played out on a big stage. Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. All those passages that Paul would write in, in all these different books and epistles. It's a big part of the New Testament revelation. That we would all be adopted then into God's family. We have a real legal standing with the Father. That's why we'll go on in verse 17 and say, If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. By whom he has made us accepted in the beloved Last thing then, not only the adoption, but we also see that we are accepted. So we get acceptation. And the presence of the Spirit in us is constantly reminding us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That all is because we've been born of the Spirit. And we have the Spirit of adoption. We are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We have full legal standing. We are going to inherit What does joint heirs mean? It means share and share alike. That's what it means. That means that what is Jesus is is mine and what is mine is Jesus's. Joint heirs of Christ. But you know, all this can be true. And there's still the question of acceptation. Will we be accepted into God's forever family? And that's what Ephesians 1, 6 tells us. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So that we have identification. Yes, the Spirit of God is in us. And so we know the cause of that. That we are his. If we didn't have the Spirit of Christ, we would not be his. We get identification. But we also get then uh, adoption. We also get Uh, The truth of our liberation through the Spirit. We also get the truth of our acceptation all through the Spirit of God. This is ours. Well, sometimes I have to bring up old stuff. You have to understand, most of the new music that I listen to these days, even if if I'm listening to country music, it's old country. Anybody else there with me? I mean, it's that country from back in the 70s and so 80s. And, uh, I used to listen to the Eagles. Y'all will forgive me, won't you? Anybody else here listen to the Eagles? 
that I think probably one or two of you might have. Remember that song, Desperado? You kids don't remember. Look it up. If you had never heard Desperado, you need to listen to it. It's worth a listen. Desperado. It's the story of a man wandering through life and lonely and getting old, losing all his highs and lows. They said, ain't, the, ain't it funny how your feelings go away? Freedom, oh freedom, it said. Well, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Haunting song. I don't understand all it meant. But he called on him at the end to come to his senses and come down from his fences and open the gate. You better let somebody love you, he said, before it's too late. You know, it's possible for a lot of Christians to walk through life where the promise of our freedom in Christ sounds like just somebody talking. It's words written on a page. It's truth preached in the pulpit. But if we're not living out that freedom in Christ, a lot of times it's because we're making the same mistake that the desperado did. But I'm not trying to tell you tonight that the eagles were intentionally portraying biblical truth. I'm just telling you it does. I don't think they thought of it. They didn't intend to do it. Uh, Desperado's not a praise and worship song. But when they described him living his life on the fence, refusing to allow himself to love and be loved... why freedom sounded like such an illusion it sounded free I could bring up Wichita lineman tonight too that <laughs> oh Glenn Campbell song yeah Good. And I'm not going to <laughs> sorry I already did oh well <laughs> same kind of concept Going through life without love and, and, and not loving anybody. Well, wouldn't that be just a glorious freedom? No. It's a bondage all on its own. And for God's people to find themselves then living their life on the fence like that, with one foot trying to live in the world and the other foot trying to live for God, refusing then to go a step further where we develop our love relationship with God first. So that that crucial aspect of that vertical relationship with God is established first. We love God. He loves us. And because of that, then we can love one another. You see, that's where the freedom really plays out. Not in keeping our distance. Not with just keeping God at arm's length. We try to do that inside of us. There's a tired and hungry heart yearning to be free. We don't have to earn all this. We don't have to earn all this. God intends for us to enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's no coincidence that the next passage in Romans 8 is going to deal with our suffering with Christ. We'll pick that up next week. But for now, we just consider these great truths about our freedom, our identification, our 
liberation, our adoption, our acceptation. And the proof of all of that, what is bringing all that to life in our life is the presence of the Spirit of God in us. You may remember a time tonight, I hope you do, when you came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. When He touched your heart in life, and some of you it might have been a specific event. I've told you for me, for me it happened in a two-a-day revival meeting in the morning. When the only people were there were kids and women because all the men were at work. But we had two-a-day revivals just the same. And I happen to think one of the reasons why we did that is because in some of those two-a-day revivals, little boys like me would come under conviction of their sin and know they needed to be saved. So for me, it was very much of an event. And I was convicted, and I, I knew, I knew. I needed to be saved. For some of you, it might have been more of a process. It might have taken place over a long time. You may have already been an adult, not a little child. You may not have been raised up in church. And everything about the Bible and everything about biblical truth was all new to you. And so something may have been going on in you that you didn't know what it was. You were yearning for something, but you didn't know. You were like uh, looking out over the Ohio River. Yearning for something you didn't know what it was. The Spirit of God was working in your life. Eventually you'd know that. He has a remarkable way of making himself known to us. And of making ourselves known to us. So that we understand that we're lost. And we need to be saved. But that same Spirit, the minute you said yes to Jesus, didn't just say, okay, you're done. Finished here, on to the next case. Oh, no. The Spirit of God continues to work in you to this very moment. And out into eternity, we will enjoy our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Let's stand together, please.